2: Dr. Neff received her doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley and is currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. During her last year of graduate school, she became interested in Buddhism and has been practicing meditation in the insight meditation tradition ever since. While doing her postdoctoral work, she decided to conduct research on self-compassion a central construct in Buddhist psychology. Dr. Neff is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, creating a scale to measure the construct almost 20 years ago. She's author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and her latest, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast, Dr. Neff. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm happy to be able to talk to you. So before we jump into all of my questions, I'd love to ask about your health discovery. What was your aha moment around self-compassion and then the actions you took because of that moment? For
1: me, the aha moment was when I first even discovered the idea of self-compassion. It had never dawned on me before. As you said in my intro, when I was in graduate school, I was under a lot of stress. I was having my dissertation presentation coming up, and there was no job offers in sight. I was young, and I got a divorce young, and I was feeling like an utter failure. And so, I learned mindfulness meditation to deal with my stress. And the woman leading the group talked about the importance of being a good friend to yourself, being compassionate, supportive towards yourself. And it took me a while to figure out this meditation thing. But almost immediately when I started being compassionate and supportive toward myself, it's okay, Kristen. It happens to everyone. People do get divorced. People do get jobs after getting their PhD. You know, you're doing the best you can. I'm here for you. I just shifted my attitude toward the stress I was experiencing. And immediately it made a difference in my ability to cope. That's why I was so taken it was like wow this really makes a difference and then you might say the action step i took when i did get a job at ut austin was to decide to try to research it and actually show empirically that this helps us deal with our distress
2: i think just before we dig in defining some of these terms so self-compassion here is a quick word from our sponsor
1: we
0: take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
2: Fierce self-compassion. How do you define these terms, or how should we as listeners define them? So the easy way to think about self-compassion is, if you think
1: of the word in the Latin, passion is to suffer, calm is with. So how are we with our suffering? Are we with our suffering the same way we are with the suffering of our good friends and loved ones with warmth, care and support? Or are we harshly self-critical? Do we blame ourselves? Do we judge ourselves? Are we mean to ourselves? And so the easy way to think about it is just treating yourself like you would treat a good friend or a loved one. But the scientific definition is actually a little more complex. There are three elements that all need to be there. There's the kindness, which I referred to, but also two other things. First of all, we need to be mindful of our suffering in order to give ourselves compassion. If we pretend it's not there, just stiff up a little bit, or if we get sucked into it, drawn into it, so we lose all perspective, we can't sit outside of ourselves and say, wow, I'm really hurting. What can I do to help? So we need mindfulness. We need some balance and space, you might say, with our difficulties. And really importantly, what makes it compassion and not pity, or self-compassion and not self-pity, is remembering that imperfection, making mistakes, difficulty. This is part of the shared human experience. It's not about me. It's about honoring my humanity, which means, yeah, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to have struggles and strife. Everyone does. I'm not so alone in this. And so when these three components are all operating, mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness, then according to the way I think about it, that's real self-compassion.
2: And how do you implement that in your life? What are some of the questions you're asking yourself or the check-in that you're doing with yourself to see how you're doing with these three components?
1: Well, so a lot of people who are self-critical, for instance, they have a harsh internal dialogue. So the easiest way to check in with how self-compassionate you're being is just ask yourself, would I say what I just said to myself, to a good friend I cared about? And if the answer is no, then a really good model of thinking about how you might treat yourself is how am I when I'm being supportive? Maybe a good friend or a mentor. So when you mentor or a colleague, asking yourself, is your internal dialogue friendly and supportive, warm, caring or not? That's one of the things. But there are other things you can do is, for instance, when we lack self-compassion, usually we're in a state of threat. We're in fight, flight or freeze mode. We're fighting ourselves, hoping we'll change or fleeing into a sense of shame or frozen and stuck in rumination. And you can tell that physiologically because the sympathetic nervous system is activated. So you can just check in, is my body tense? Am I contracted? And if so, one of the ways you can be more self-compassionate is you giving yourself soothing and supportive touch. When you do that, you're actually increasing heart rate variability and lowering your cortisol levels. You can put your hands on your heart or your face and just give yourself that sense of safety. I'm here for myself. I care about myself. And that's a really easy way to check in and change the way you're relating
2: to the moment. So can you talk a little bit about the concept of radical self-acceptance and how that fits into the whole new year, new you messaging that we get all the time around this time of year?
1: Yes, absolutely. So there are two main expressions of self-compassion, which I like to call tender and the fierce. So tender self-compassion is all about this type of acceptance. In other words, we are unconditionally worthy just because we're flawed human beings. We don't have to get a graduate degree to be worthy of compassion. It's intrinsic to our humanity. So we can accept ourselves and also we can accept our present moment experience. Yes, we're going to have difficult emotions. Things are going to be tough. This is part of reality. So we accept ourselves. We accept our emotions. But fear self-compassion is about taking action to alleviate our suffering. So even though we're unconditionally worthy, some of our behaviors could use a little help. In other words, it's not compassionate to accept maybe, you know, you've got some addictive behaviors or you're acting out relationships and it's harming yourself or others. It's not compassionate to accept those. So we can accept ourselves at the same time that we realize we want to work to change, to move our behaviors. And really importantly, a lot of our situations, maybe you're in a toxic relationship or there's so much work stress and you need to have more work-life balance or are there changes I need to make in my life in order to alleviate my suffering and create better happiness? And that's fear, self-compassion. So it's this constant balance between acceptance and change. It's, it's kind of like yin and yang. We have this accepting energy of ourselves and the present moment. At the same time, that we're always trying to take action for how can we better our happiness and our well-being at any moment. If we're too accepting without enough action, we become complacent. But if we're too much about action and we're never good enough and we're never acceptable, then that causes stress and unhappiness
2: as well. So it's really finding a balance between the two. Do you make New Year's resolutions? And if you do, how would you go about framing them in this self-compassionate way? So I've been practicing
1: self-compassion for 25 years, so I'm not really self-critical, but I still have all the same flaws and foibles that any other human being does and patterns that aren't helpful. So I do tend to try to ask myself, what do I want to work on? You know, what are some of the unhealthy maybe patterns or behaviors I have that are causing me or others suffering? The big difference in making a resolution from the perspective of self-compassion is you aren't doing it to be more acceptable or more worthy or that so other people like you more. You're doing it because you care and it makes all the difference. And the big difference it makes is it creates a, what's called a learning orientation as opposed to a performance orientation. So instead of trying to make a change in a behavior or reach a goal Because, you know, you'll be acceptable if you do, or you'll hate yourself if you don't, or other people, you know, you're worried about their reaction. It's just like you unconditionally love your child, but you also want your child to be happy and well and reach your goals and get good grades if it's important to go to college or whatever it is you want for them, but their worth isn't contingent on it. And that's the thing of self compassionate motivation is we do it just because we care and we want to be happy, not to be worthy. To give you an example, we just published a study this year with NCAA athletes. Now, their goals are pretty high. Their scholarships are riding on their athletic performance. A lot of them want to become pro players. So we taught them self-compassion, how to be compassionate about their mistakes in their training routine or in games. Again, so that their motivation to improve came not to be more acceptable, but just because it's important to them. They're athletes. They want to be their best athletic self they could be. We found it actually improved their performance. Because it lowers performance anxiety, it lowers fear of failure, and it just allows you to try hard for the right reasons. It makes it a lot easier to actually achieve your goals. And there's a lot of research supporting this idea.
2: So I love what you just said in terms of connecting it to athletic performance and athletic fitness. I can imagine that a fitness routine, if you wanted to be a better basketball player, is to go out to the court and dribble and spend hours shooting hoops. So, what is part of the practice of self-compassion? What were some of the tools that you provided and asked these athletes to practice? First of all, just being
1: mindful of any distress that's here. So if you do something, you make a mistake, you blow the game for your team, it hurts. And again, this can be in your own life. You miss a deadline. You didn't make your deadline. You're procrastinating. Okay, honoring the pain of that. That's the mindfulness. Remembering that you aren't alone is human to make mistakes. This is how we learn. This is normal. It doesn't mean it's just you. And then the kindness, the encouragement. And by the way, it's not kind to pretend there's not a problem if there is. That's not kind. Kind is good, clear, honest, constructive feedback. So I blew it. Well, I'm not alone. What can I do to possibly change? You know, what went wrong maybe in my training routine or what was happening? What were the factors that led to my missing my deadline? What can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? And that good, clear, constructive feedback is going to be the kindest thing you can do for yourself and then actually enable you to be motivated to make those changes. I mean, feeling like you're a hopeless loser
2: is not exactly very motivating in terms of wanting to make change. I love that. As you were saying all of that, I was envisioning this conversation with my kids. What is the research in doing this in an age-appropriate way?
1: There's a very large body of research with teenagers showing it's hugely important. Could you imagine if you learned about self-compassion in middle school? I wish I had. So much of the pain would have been not so bad. So especially because teenagers, they tend to feel so isolated. They don't know that what they're going through is just something everyone goes through. They think it's just them. They feel cut off from others. There's a lot of social comparison. For instance, to have self-esteem, you need to feel special and above average. And, you know, are people more popular? Do they have more Instagram followers? All that stuff's going on. And then so compassion really helps teenagers feel more connected to others, understand that making mistakes is part of being human. This kindness is encouragement really helps lower, for instance, depression, anxiety levels, increase happiness. But this also does so for adults. There's also some research with children, not quite as much because it's a little harder to assess self-compassion with kids. But the great thing about children is by about the age of seven, they're, they're understanding friendship. They're learning what, what does it mean to be a good friend. And so you can actually help children learn to be more self-compassionate by just saying, when you learn how to be a good friend, you also have to be a good friend to yourself. It doesn't take a lot of sophistication to understand that concept. So for parents out there, when you're thinking of how to teach your kids self-compassion, the best way to do it is to model it. First of all, to embody it. You know, if you break grandmother's precious vase and you go, oh, I'm such an idiot, you're modeling for your kid. Oh, that's the thing to do when you make a mistake. But if you give yourself compassion for, oh, I love that vase. I feel sad. That's so, mm, I feel badly. Well, it happens, you know, and then kindness. OK, it's OK. It happens. But this is really, again, part of kindness. What could I have done differently that maybe would have made it less likely that I broke grandmother's precious vase, put it in a safer place or been more careful? So part of kindness is modeling responsible behavior.
2: And if you do that for your kids, you're helping them directly in addition to helping yourself. How do you make this a continuous practice? So how do you go from thinking about this Every year, as you kind of start the new year or you're thinking about the things you need to change about yourself, how do you make this more of a practice that's akin to breathing? You're just doing it without even thinking about it.
1: Well, it does take continual practice because for those self-critics out there who are beating themselves up now because that's one more thing they're bad at, self-compassion evolutionarily speaking, we're actually evolved more to be self-critical than self-compassionate. So what we know is that the threat defense system evolved for personal safety. So when we make a mistake, for instance, we feel threatened. So we go into fight, flight, or freeze toward the problem, which is ourself. Compassion more evolved for other people to take care of our children and group members. That's called the tend and befriend response. So, you know, give yourself a break. It's natural to be self-critical when you feel threatened, when your friend makes a mistake. You aren't so threatened. So it's easier to be compassionate. We're working against our biology at some level. The good news is, is we can learn to hack the system by practicing self-compassion. It does have to be intentional because it's not completely natural. But eventually, you know, we get so rewarded by seeing how much more effective we are, how much more useful it is to be supportive toward ourselves as opposed to be harshly self-critical. And we can retrain our brains, right? We can develop new neural networks. So for instance, now I still make mistakes, I have to say. So I make a mistake, a feeling of shame arises, but then very quickly I remember, okay, feel the pain of that shame. Remember you weren't alone and be kind and supportive to yourself in the midst of your shame. And so you learn just by habit that this is a helpful, effective way to be with your suffering. So it absolutely can be done and you need to try to do it as much as possible because you're working not only against evolution, but also society. You know, we weren't raised with the idea that it's good to be self-compassionate. So we're working against some of these myths that society has that's going to make us selfish or lazy or self-indulgent, all of which have been disproven by research,
2: by the way. Can you talk about other guided exercises or practices around self-compassion? What other strategies would you like to share? Do you want me to lead a little practice? Yes, that would be great. Okay. So
1: for instance, maybe if you want to close your eyes, you don't have to, but just call up some sort of suffering in your life. Let's make this real. Think of something in your life that maybe you're stressed about, or you're feeling badly about a mistake you made, or maybe some challenge in your relationship or at work. So the first thing you want to do is just be mindful of the pain involved, right? Just kind of get in touch with the feelings of discomfort or distress turn toward it. Our instinct is to turn away from it. So just acknowledge it's, it's hard to feel this stress or this pain or these feelings of inadequacy or shame, And then remind yourself of the humanity of this. You certainly aren't alone. There are millions probably of people. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
1: Feeling something similar to you right now? It's only human to be in a situation like this? You know, see if you can feel your connectedness to others in having this experience. You aren't alone. And then to express kindness and support, one way to do that is physically. So maybe putting your hands on your heart and just feeling the warmth of your hands on the center of your chest. Let your touch be gentle and yet firm and supportive. Kind of communicating, I'm here for you, to yourself. And then try saying some words of encouragement or support or maybe acceptance to yourself, which are the type of thing you would say to a good friend you Cared about if they came to you and said they were in a similar situation. Maybe just take a moment to play that out. Imagine a good friend came to you with a similar situation. You know, what would you say to them to be supportive and kind and compassionate? And then try saying something similar to yourself. So that's the practice. You can, it's like how to make a self compassion cookie. You need one part mindfulness. You need one part common humanity, one part kindness. The nice thing is, is the physical touch, because it goes straight to our physiology, sometimes you can just put your hands on your heart or your face or use some sort of touch as a shorthand message for, I'm here for myself, I'm supporting myself. So just paying attention to how your body's reacting and how your mind and emotions are
2: reacting. That was just really beautiful. And I was thinking of how to model this for my children, because that's who come up for me always whenever I'm thinking about self-compassion. And I'm wondering, is a piece of this also, in terms of the shared humanity part of it, also looking for connection outside of yourself and having these talks and saying, hey, this is what happened, so that you can actually hear what that friend is going to say to you, and that can be part of your internal dialogue. Absolutely. So the best way to practice self-compassion
1: is actually with others. Because there's not a lot of self and self-compassion. It's really about embracing our humanity. And so when you can share that with others and they can share their situation and we can talk
2: about these things, it's much more powerful. We are coming to a close with our time together today, but I really hope we can have more of these discussions. I'm really looking forward to your future work around burnout and empathy. I would love that. We're actually coming out with a book on self-compassion for burnout
1: next year. And I'm also starting something called the Self-Compassion Community, which will be a subscription to my website where we actually get people together to practice self-compassion in community. So I'm very excited about that because you're so right. It's more effective when we do this with others.
2: And just to really allow you the time and the space, I'd love to close my episodes with a bite-sized action item that a listener can take home to create change in their lives today. So do you have a few takeaways that you'd like us to walk away with this episode? Yes. Well, I think that,
1: again, the easiest, most acceptable thing to do is just start paying attention to how you're relating to yourself. Would you speak this way to your child or your friend? If not, try speaking in a more supportive way and see what happens. Try it out for yourself. Don't believe me, even though this over 5,000 studies (laughs) supporting what
2: I'm saying. But try it out for yourself and see what happens, and you'll be your own best teacher. Thank you so much for being with us today. Today, we've talked with Dr. Kristen Neff about ways that we can engage in a self-compassion practice every day with ourselves, our families, our children, and everyone around us. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe.